Greetings, explorers, and welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. My name is Mike Wong, and in episode 28, Elise and I tackled two classic Star Trek episodes and their relation to Earth's subsurface biosphere and the possibilities of silicon-based life. But before we begin, I'd just like to plug another side project of mine. Now, as most of you have figured out by now, I'm a graduate student at Caltech, and in my spare time, I produce this podcast. In my spare, spare time, I do a little bit of graphic design, and I recently teamed up with Professor Katie Mack, who's kind of a big deal on Twitter, to turn some of her best tweets into inspirational astronomy posters. We call them Cosmic Motivations, and I'd love it if you'd check them out. We've got a Redbubble store, and you can find the link in the show notes. I'm also hoping to get Katie on Strange New Worlds one day. She's a Trekkie, and a science communicator, and a pretty good cosmologist too. But right now, let's bring our gazes down from the stars and talk about the critters you've got just beneath your feet. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds. Hello. Hi, Elise. Hey, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) See, it's kind of weird for us to say hello to each other because we've been sitting watching Star Trek together for about the past, like, two hours. Exactly. (laughs) We're doing it for your sake. (laughs) The two episodes we just watched were The Devil in the Dark and The Tholian Web. Web, yep. Both from the original series. Oh boy. <laughs> it was quite a ride to go back that far. And the reason why we chose these two episodes was because we want to talk about... Subsurface life today, right? And silicon-based life. And silicon-based life, yeah. And The Devil in the Dark features the lovable Horda. So lovable. <laughs> I, I disagree on the lovable <laughs> And the Tholian web features... Tholians who may or may not be silicon-based. Depending on which wiki you look at. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we should just start with our thoughts on the episodes. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, Elise, I know that you got into Star Trek by watching the original series characters, but first by seeing them on the big screen mm-hmm. in the J.J. Abrams-verse. Yeah, so I saw like the sleeker, sexier version of everything before I saw the original series. So my first introduction to Star Trek was with the 2009 movie, and then my mom had the terrible idea of telling me that there was more, so I, went, I watched all of it on Netflix as well. So really, my first series was the original series, and somehow I got through all of it. <laughs> Multiple times. <laughs> Multiple times. I think I've watched original series through like four or five times. In varying degrees of consciousness, I got mono in high school and definitely watched through the entire original series then, so like that doesn't really count. But yeah, it's weird to see it again after so long, especially after being spoiled by Discovery. Yeah. It's, like, actually terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Certain parts of it, for sure. It's, like, actually really bad in a lovable way. Right, right. Like, in a lovable way. But, I mean, and we were talking about Devil in the Dark. The whole episode, Kirk is just angry. Yeah. Like, he's just an unhappy man. And, like, all of the acting is super deadpan. Like, everybody's just sort of angry. And, and we chalked it up to Kirk just really disliking the mission, but... Right, that's not what you want to do as a starship captain. <laughs> yeah. You're in charge of the flagship of the Federation. You don't want to be... <laughs> Dirty miners. Yeah, deep underground on some godforsaken colony. Mining mi- planet. Yeah, yeah, mining colony. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it was... And, you know, like, the Horda is literally just a guy underneath, like, a shag carpet with, with some styrofoam glued onto it. And that, I mean, that was pretty lovable. 
That was lovable. The yes. Horda itself, I don't think, is that lovable. <laughs> <laughs> the special effects are, though. Yeah, no, it was it was really funny. We were just sitting here just laughing the whole time. Especially, like, those classic, you know, when they play the, like, the do-do-do-do-do-do-do music in the original series when, like, Kirk and Spock or Bones, like, have a little, like, moment where they are making fun of each other. Those were good times that, you know, you don't get in the more, like, action-driven high stakes Star Trek of today. But yeah, it was quite a ride to go back. I think these were the first two original series Star Trek episodes that we've ever watched together. Yeah. We've seen some of the original series movies together. Mm -hmm. And we've seen, of course, Star Trek Beyond and Star Trek Discovery and episodes of TNG and Voyager. But yeah, going back to the original <laughs> series, honestly, <laughs> it's, it's not something that I do very often. Mm -hmm. Can I be real honest? Yeah, I, I mean, I just said it was terrible. I don't enjoy going back to watch the original series that often because it's 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 hard to sit through sometimes. It's, it's so dated. I mean, it's yeah. from the 1960s. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you, you remember it for what it is. Somehow I sat through it and didn't get totally turned off from Star Trek when I was in fifth grade. But that's, that's incredible. Yeah. You know, we didn't have like... No, we had a lot of stuff when I was in fifth grade, but... Yeah, it was just like very different, I think, from everything else I was watching, which is why it was amusing. But now it's, I have better Star Trek, mm -hmm. whereas back then that was my baseline Star Trek. Now I've got Discovery, <laughs> <laughs> pulling crazy fast ones on all of us. But Yeah, we can get to that. We can, we, oh, Mike and I noticed something that completely contradicts the entire Discovery timeline. Mm -hmm. But we'll just leave that as a teaser and maybe discuss it as we talk about the plots of these episodes. Sounds right? good. Yeah. Um, so I have an, as a note here that The Devil in the Dark was the first time that McCoy ever uttered, I'm a doctor, not a blank. That was the first one. That was the first one. Yeah, and he it said, is I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer, mm -hmm. when Kirk asks him to help heal this Horda. Mm -hmm. And basically he just asked the Enterprise to beam down cement. a bucket of cement. <laughs> <laughs> Which, when you think about it, because Kirk's like, why does this work? And Bones is like, well, Captain, it's mostly made of silicon, and so is this cement. And I'm just like, wait, so if that means if I got, like, a huge gun wound on my leg, somebody could just come and smear graphite on it, it would be good as new. Because, you know, graphite's mostly carbon. Mm -hmm. So, you know, by Bones' logic, that's that's how you fix people. <laughs> yeah, for context, the, the, the Horda, the reason we watched this episode is because the Horda is a silicon-based life form. And we'll be talking about the feasibility of that later. Yeah. Let's yeah, let's just talk about the Horda for a bit. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it, it basically is a life form that lives very deep underground on this mining planet, world, yeah. mining world, and it basically eats rock. Yep. And yeah, I think we're going to be talking about things that also eat basically rock. Eat yeah, rock, it's completely so feasible. That yeah. part did not upset me at all. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of things that eat rock. You don't, but bacteria do, and so do archaea. So two of the big groups of life that aren't us can do it. The one kind of rock that we do eat is salt. True, yeah. And there, there are animals that eat clay, but they don't get any energy from it. And we don't get energy from salt either. So mm -hmm. it's not eating it in the same sense that we're not extracting energy from salt. Right. Um, usually when you say eat, like when you're eating a pizza, what your body's essentially doing is burning that pizza. Like, you know, you could throw a log on a fire and it will burn. Your body's doing basically the same reaction to that pizza to generate energy. 
bigger cells use. But when you eat, if you were to go eat salt, you would just, if that was all you were eating, you would die because your body can't burn salt. It just uses it for some of its chemistry, but it right. doesn't get energy from it. Right. Yeah. We need the sodium ions for a lot of... Yeah. Uh, a lot of electrical firing in the brain and just signaling between cells. Mm -hmm. I also have a note here that Arthur C. Clarke, the famous science fiction writer, mm -hmm. once remarked that... The Devil in the Dark, quote, impressed me because it presented the idea, unusual in science fiction then and now, that something weird and even dangerous need not be malevolent. That is a lesson that many of today's politicians have yet to learn. Oh End boy. Quote. <laughs> oh boy. Can we just leave that for the viewers to digest? Yeah. <laughs> and not launch into personal politics rants. Right. I think that the Horda is such a great concept mm -hmm. for this reason that Arthur C. Clarke gave, and then also because of the interesting silicon-based idea for life that mm -hmm. we'll touch upon later. Life not as we know it is what Spock said, and even if you decide silicon-based life isn't really possible, life not as we know it certainly is. It's an unknown unknown. Mm -hmm. But coming from Discovery, watching Discovery for so long, and mm -hmm. then seeing the, the Horda episode... There were some parallels between the, the Horda and the Tardigrade, yeah. which I love and want to see more of. Mike <laughs> loves the Tardigrade. Yeah, it's 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 pretty cute, actually. I don't. It's not cute. It is cool. <laughs> I have a soft spot for weird animal thingies. Have like you looked at a scanning electron microscope picture of a Tardigrade? It's terrifying. Well, the Tardigrade in Discovery, though, it's got little whiskers. At least it's just staring at me like I'm crazy. <laughs> And it likes its mycelium, and it, you know you can pour. By that bucket. logic, Stamets is adorable, and he's definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I find Stamets adorable. Oh, God. <laughs> um, okay, anyhow, Stamets so... is also cool. I think Mike is confusing cool with cute here. <laughs> All right, um, what was I trying to say about the uh, that? It's something that's like dangerous perhaps um, but in complex and intelligent but not necessarily malevolent exactly and they make this same kind of assumption that because something can be vicious mm -hmm. in self-defense that it has malevolent intentions mm -hmm. and that was the same way with a tardigrade mm -hmm. in discovery but then michael burnham was very spock about this whole thing just like spock was like, hmm, maybe this Horda is worth studying from a scientific perspective and we shouldn't just assume that it has the worst intentions. Until Kirk's in danger, in which case Spock is like, kill it! Kill it on fire! Kill it now! <laughs> that was really funny, actually. <laughs> there's, a, there's a Star Trek abridged series that's really funny and really inappropriate, but they they point out in the abridged series this sudden turnaround, and yeah, it's it's a pretty funny little tidbit. But okay. yeah, Michael Burnham and Spock have some, some shared empathy for strange creatures. Maybe, you know, having that sailot around Sarek's house as kids, they learned animal empathy. Yes. <laughs> having a pet is good for you. Oh, I, I like that animated series reference there. They even reference it in the original series. Oh, when Spock's mom comes with Spock's dad to the Enterprise, mm -hmm. Kirk and McCoy are talking to Spock's mom, and she's like, oh, Spock had a, had a teddy bear as a kid. Um, and Bones is like, a teddy bear? Uh, and then Spock comes over and has to correct his mother and be like, if, if you consider a teddy bear as weighing many tons and having 10 foot long things, then yes, I did have a teddy bear. <laughs> That's so it, great. It, it, is, it is canonical in the original series as well, but when you don't see it. Uh -huh. It's pretty cute. Go watch the animated series. Anything else we should say about The Devil in the Dark as an episode? Uh, the guys with clubs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Phasers won't do the trick, but I've got a club. club. Yeah. <laughs> 
Luckily, I guess it kind of does do the trick in that, like, the four guys with phasers get overrun by, like, the purple suit man with the club. Mm -hmm. There's, like, two guys in in the minor group who have phasers, but then the rest of them, there's like, we're gonna fight this thing! And, you know, bring up their testosterone or whatever and grab pieces of metal and start a riot. It's it's a, it's a funny episode. You should watch it. All right. And then we watched The Tholian Web. Mm-hmm. In which the Tholians are almost entirely secondary. Honestly, like, why they, were they even there? They didn't, they didn't even need to be there. They just appeared as a problem and then disappeared as a problem without the ship really doing anything. Yeah. And <laughs> so I didn't remember the Tholian web very well. Me I, neither. Yeah. yeah. And um, <laughs> For so good I, reasons, I thought, so it is established in Star Trek canon that the Tholians exist on a very hot world, sort of like Venus. And they're probably silicon-based or at least have some kind of mineral aspect to their exoskeleton because they live on such a hostile world. But I didn't remember if that was mentioned in the Tholian web or not, and it ended up not even... In the Tholian web, they just kind of project this picture of a, like a crystal guy Yeah. with this like very high-contrast image editing <laughs> filter over over the image to kind of, I guess, imply that it's really hot on the ship. But yeah, they show up and they're just like, you must leave. And Spock's like, no, we gotta stay. And they're like, okay, we will web you in now. And they start building a web that's sort of like building time pressure throughout the episode when there's already a source of time pressure and that the ship's all going crazy if they don't leave. So the Tholians are unnecessary for that. And then in the end, they escape the web just by sort of like not doing anything just turning the ship back on somehow displaces them yeah. <laughs> from the web. So yeah, they're pretty unnecessary, but they come back in other episodes of Star Trek as well. But yeah, this very kind of prismoid-looking, high-temperature, perhaps silicon-based, yeah. definitely mineral. But it was good form. to see the Tholian web because that's the episode where the Defiant slips into mm-hmm. interspace. And we didn't remember this either, I think. This was just sort of coincidence. You, you remembered. Yeah. yeah, I didn't remember at all. We found a plot hole. Right. Very important plot so, hole. Okay, so they beam to the, the Defiant, mm-hmm. and they see all of these crew members dead strewn about the bridge. And There's a red shirt on the ground who's strangling the captain of that ship, and mm-hmm. they're dead. And Chekhov says, Has there ever been a mutiny on a starship before? And Spock says, Absolutely no record of such an occurrence, Ensign. Um, his sister. <laughs> uh, uh, the entire plot of Discovery uh, is a mutiny on a starship. How did they miss this? <laughs> this is the Defiant episode. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what? Maybe there's a way it all gets. You know, explained. maybe Lorca just like deletes the whole Michael Burnham record. You know, maybe Spock just doesn't talk about his delinquent sister. I have no idea. Yeah, you know, this seems like a like an issue mm-hmm. for for the Discovery canon. Well, we'll see if they remedy it. Yeah, you know, maybe somebody out there listening has the power to address <laughs> this problem. It's very important. So yeah, big issue in the fandom here. Almost as big as Klingons having forehead ridges. Mm. Mm. <laughs> no, not quite that big. Mm. Can we just not talk about the Klingons? Okay. Ever. No more Klingons. There were no Klingons in these two. Nope. Episodes. Nope. There weren't. There were no Klingons. Just plot holes. Anything else you want to say about the Tholian web? There's some great camera work. Oh yeah. So the... Mike and I are photographers. 
we work on the yearbook at Caltech and then Mike's just always running around with the camera. So of course, Mike's first comment when it comes to the like crazy person scenes, because what's happening is they're in interphasic space and everyone's going crazy because of this. So whenever they would zoom in on like a red shirt who was going crazy, they would zoom in on his face and then switch the camera so that it was like from their point of view, but it would be a wide angle lens. So everything would look really fish-eyed and weird. Mike's like, oh, I guess wide angle is just the crazy lens. <laughs> so just, you know, a nice little filmography tidbit there. Yeah. Wide angle is the crazy lens. And then at the very end, Chekhov is just in the background sitting and just smiling, looking straight ahead at nothing. And so Mike says, ah, Chekhov must be thinking, wow, I can see everything in normal now. I'm not seeing everything in wide angle lens anymore. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Mike's a nerd, end of story. <laughs> <laughs> we can just end the podcast. Later. Yeah, that's it. You don't get any Astrobio discussions today. <laughs> Those were pretty cool episodes. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Um, pretty bad. <laughs> Tholian Web was a terrible episode. I'm just, I'm, it was really bad. <laughs> I did like the Devil in the Dark. Devil though. in the Dark's a good one. Yeah. Actually, the one redeeming quality about the Tholian Web, though, was getting to see Kirk's, like, tape recorded mm -hmm. yeah. memo the to the bone spock, spock interactions were good that was that was it and then the little tidbit at the end where they all have a laugh because bones and spock pretend not <laughs> they hadn't to... seen it yeah mm -hmm. those end tidbits they often redeem these these episodes yeah and the one in the devil in the dark too was also it was great funny. yeah the horda says that spock's ears are the best part above human biology but spock just didn't have the heart to tell her that he's the only one Right, it's With from his Vulcan ears. half. Yeah, and uh, Kirk says, oh, well, I think you're becoming more and more human. And he's like, I do not have to stand here and be insulted. <laughs> <laughs> it's very classic. And like Kirk and Bones look at each other and Bones does that sort of like smile and nod up and down sort of thing that yeah. he does. Yeah, it's good times. Well, we may not have lovable hoarders that love vulcan pointy ears but mm -hmm. we do have lots of other interesting things that live very deep underground we do and we do have a lot of things that are capable of eating rocks so the subsurface biosphere of the earth which is just a fancy way of saying everywhere deep underground uh, that has life living in it all of that's considered the subsurface biosphere it's something that people actually haven't known about for very long, but we're finding more and more of it. It's very, very important. There are some estimates that put about a third of all biomass on the Earth in this subsurface. And if you're talking just about bacteria, the estimates can get as high as between 70 and even 99% of the diversity in there. So some of these are very optimistic estimates based on people sampling areas that we would expect to have high diversity. But in any case, there's a lot of stuff down there. And the big issue for life is something that the hoarder ran into, which is how do you get your energy when you live underground and there's nothing photosynthesizing? Mm -hmm. Because everything you eat, unless you're really weird and you go and eat cave slime, maybe, maybe you do. Not me, not me. <laughs> maybe you do. I, yeah, Mike doesn't do this. Uh, just, just to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> he might be weird, but he's not that weird. Um, <laughs> everything you eat comes from the sun in that something did photosynthesis to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and fix it or just turn it into organic carbon, which is something that you can eat. It's something that burns. But underground, there's no photosynthesis. There's plenty of CO2 in most places. Um, there's CO2 in rock pores. There's CO2 coming out of volcanic vents. There's CO2 pretty much all over the place. But the issue is getting the energy to fix that CO2 as organic carbon. And so there are plenty of 
organisms that do this on the earth and we call them wait for it chemolithoautotrophs that's a long word yes yes uh the chemo part is entirely unnecessary people add it just to sound smart but let's just break down what this word means so chemo means chemical uh as opposed to photo which means light so we call plants photoautotrophs because they use light to auto self troph get nourishment from so light self gets nourishment from they do photosynthesis to get their own organic carbon which is what they use to nourish themselves a chemolitho autotroph chemo chemical litho rock auto self troph gets nourishment from so basically this ridiculous word just means uses chemicals that it finds in rocks uses what we call redox gradients or which are basically just energy disequilibria in its environment to fix its own organic carbon. So these are the base of the biosphere underground. And not everything that lives underground does this. There are some things that, you know, just like us, we don't photosynthesize, we eat things that do it. So there are plenty of things that live on eating either these chemolithoautotrophs or their byproducts. But the way that they do this, like I mentioned, is getting energy from chemical gradients in their environment. And so there are plenty of these that you could get from just eating rocks. So there are certain ions that make up minerals that have more electrons than others. So if you allow electrons to flow from the kind of electron generous species to the, and species is just a state in which an atom can be, from the more electron rich areas, the electron generous areas to the electron poor, the electron hungry areas, you release energy, which you can exploit to, to make this organic carbon or to just get energy to run yourself. So let me see if I understand this at least. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. life in the subsurface is taking advantage of natural chemical disequilibria or what you called a redox gradient. Yeah, That's... basically just some species that are like very into giving away their electrons being around in the same area as species that want to take electrons. And that electron transfer then releases free energy that the organism can use. Either to power itself or to make organic carbon to build itself. Sounds good. So what is an example of one of these things that an organism would want to eat to get its electrons and something that the organism would want to quote unquote breathe to give those electrons to? One of the most important metabolisms in the subsurface is called uh, methanogens, are organisms that do this. They make methane. So methane is the byproduct of their metabolism, just like carbon dioxide is the byproduct of our metabolism. So what they do is they take electrons from hydrogen gas, which comes out of all kinds of volcanic environments. Hydrothermal vents are a place where you see this a lot. And they shunt the electrons off of this really electron-rich hydrogen onto CO2, which is really weird when you think about it because CO2 is our byproduct. We burn organic carbon to CO2, but hydrogen is so electron rich that you can shunt electrons off of hydrogen to CO2 and you'll still release some free energy. And this CO2, when you shunt the electrons onto it, becomes methane and that's what's released as the byproduct. Cool. Something that my own research group is very preoccupied with is the detection of methane on Mars, both from ground-based observations of the atmosphere and by the Mars Curiosity rover, which has a little atmosphere sniffer and has found spikes of methane in Mars's atmosphere that seem to all of a sudden appear and then all of a sudden go away. 
And one of the mechanisms that you can get a release of methane into the atmosphere is if you have some kind of deep subsurface biosphere where there are microbes doing this exact reaction combining hydrogen and CO2. CO2 is plentiful in Mars's atmosphere and then hydrogen, as Elise said, would be generated at any kind of subsurface hydrothermal vent system. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then you can get these microbes that will turn those two into methane and then the methane can seep out of the surface into the atmosphere and be sniffed by a rover. And we still don't know if this methane detection is from biology or if it's from some other geochemical process that can create methane also. So that's an active area of research that we're working on is how to distinguish biogenic methane from geochemical methane. Yeah, and if we want to think about things that are really just rocks instead of, you know, we're talking about gas here, hydrogen and CO2. They're things that we can't metabolize, but they're not exactly rocks. But there are plenty of bacteria and archaea, which are like bacteria. They're just in a different lineage. Um, they're also single-celled organisms that use ions that make up minerals as sources and sinks for electrons. And they'll use inorganic compounds that end up in rock, even if they're not building up minerals, to be a source or like an ultimate endpoint for their electrons. We use oxygen as the ultimate endpoint because it's very hungry. It wants all those electrons. There are things that don't want them quite as much, but that still work okay if you're a small single-celled organism that doesn't need, you know, the amount of energy it takes to keep a human going. But yeah. I mean, there, there are even organisms that use like uranium and plutonium in their metabolisms. There's something called Geobacter. Mike and I were joking about this when we were watching the Horda episode, The Devil in the Dark, that maybe the Horda has a bunch of Geobacter symbionts that are metabolizing all that rock for it. But <laughs> I think Spock even said that there was no life as we know it in his scans. Maybe he was just being macro-sized bias, not talking about the, the small life. Yeah, you know, they, they seem to do that sometimes <laughs> on Star Trek. It, it kind of bugged me, for instance, in episode eight of Star Trek Discovery, where they beam down to this planet. Pavo? I, I, Pavo, the planet yeah. Pavo. And the, the weird bluish, like, non-corporeal life forms yeah. come. And then Michael Burnham or somebody in the on the away team says, I thought this planet was supposed to be uninhabited. And I'm just like, there are trees all, all around, around you. you. <laughs> <laughs> there are trees everywhere. Yeah. Um, so I mentioned that... Studying Earth's deep biosphere is relevant for understanding possible life forms on Mars, especially in the Martian subsurface, where there could be habitable conditions still even today, um, and probably even more habitable in the past. But at least, what are some other reasons why studying the Earth's deep biosphere is very important for astrobiology? Well, for astrobiology, it's important because the more we look into these deep subsurface environments, the more we find that there's more than one way to be alive. There are organisms in the subsurface which, because they encounter these ridiculous environments, it's super high pressure. Often there's really ridiculous chemistry locally. It's either super alkaline or super acidic, very, very hot. So what we find in the subsurface tends to be what we call extremophiles. They either do better in or they can tolerate ridiculously extreme environments. Things that, if you were doing a simple calculation of the habitable zone for a planet that was just, is there liquid water on the surface, you would consider inhabitable. But we have life on Earth that shows us that even if you're a pessimist, even if you think that life can't do anything that it hasn't already done on Earth, you still have to admit that the habitable zone is a lot larger than you might think it is if you're just thinking about 
temperatures within which water can be liquid on the surface of a planet. Because we're finding things that live in temperatures that are much past the boiling point of water, because under a lot of pressure, water can stay liquid even above 100 C. And we're finding things that can live in really cold environments, really alkaline environments, really acidic environments, like lower than pH 1. And so it's just kind of redefining the limits of what habitability even means. So in a lot of these places, you wouldn't really expect to find huge civilizations because the energy needs are just not there. You get so much more energy from burning organic carbon with oxygen than you do from shuffling electrons around ions that you pull out of a rock. But when it comes to just getting life going or bringing life somewhere and letting it sort of grow up, there are a lot of places that you could put it or find it that are outside of what we normally consider habitable. Excellent. So we know that there's geobacter hanging around in the subsurface, but are there hordas? Could I like go dig a hole and find some silicon-based life? So the idea for silicon-based life is that silicon falls right below carbon in the periodic table. If you remember your high school chemistry. Oh boy. <laughs> the periodic right, table The periodic table is arranged by columns of elements and each column of element has similar chemical properties. So carbon has what we call four valence electrons, four electrons that are ready to bond with other things. Okay, so it's like one of those puzzle pieces that's got four nubs that it can plug into. Yeah, exactly. And that makes carbon extremely versatile at being the backbone for lots of different kinds of molecules. The molecules that end up making up our body, the lipids, the sugars, the carbohydrates, the amino acids that we're all made of have a lot of carbon in it because carbon is just so versatile. It's got many redox states and it's got these four great arms to grab onto other things. Well, silicon has exactly the same thing. It's also got four valence electrons and thus we place it in the position right below carbon in the periodic table. So a lot of people hypothesize that if you just replaced all of the carbon with silicon, everything would be just dandy, right? Because silicon can sort of do the things that carbon does. But unfortunately, there are issues when you actually think a little bit harder about how you would get silicon life to yeah. exist. How, what are those issues? Because when you talk about it, it just sounds like, you know, I'm just taking a small puzzle piece with four nubs and just getting a fatter puzzle piece with four nubs and just building things. I can think of there being like some small geometry problems, but nothing that a few extra molecules or a few extra atoms here and there couldn't fix. This goes back to what you were talking about before in terms of the metabolisms that fix carbon into our organic molecules. So when you think about where we get our carbon from, autotrophs, whether you're a chemoautotroph or a photoautotroph, we generally get our carbon from either carbon dioxide or from methane, mm -hmm. right? We fix it from one of those two molecules. And they're both gases. And they're both gases. Carbon generally enters the biosphere from either of those two gases. But when you think about the alternatives with silicon, what is SiO2 versus CO2? It's quartz. It's silica, right? It makes minerals, it makes rocks. Yeah. And it turns out that when silicon binds to oxygen, which it really loves to do, it basically creates something that's super inert, mm -hmm. that isn't very accessible to 
metabolizing, right? You, it's, it's, it's very hard to breathe in SiO2. Because it's so happy the way it is. Exactly. It creates these long chains that end up becoming the rocks that you see. So that just would take so much energy on the part of the theoretical cell we're imagining to even just break that silicon out of its environment to use. Exactly. That it just wouldn't be worth it. Right. And if you think about the alternative, so methane is CH4. Each of those little arms on the carbon is bonded to one hydrogen atom. Mm -hmm. Silicon can do the same thing. So it would be SiH4. I don't and even know what that you've is. You've probably never encountered it before, right? No. And that's because it spontaneously combusts. Oh, great. Yeah. So the silicon-hydrogen bond is extremely weak. That's bad news for biology. And yeah. It's, it's basically because silicon is much less electronegative than hydrogen. Uh, we were talking about how different atoms were greedy or less greedy for electrons, mm -hmm. right? And so it turns out that carbon is pretty greedy for electrons compared to hydrogen. Mm -hmm. So when a bond is formed, that's basically a carbon sharing in, uh, one of its electrons with hydrogen, which shares the other electron, and you've got this electron pair, that's yeah, what a bond is. But it's really is. like quote-unquote sharing because the carbon takes most the of it, The carbon right? takes most of it because... So it's it, closer to an ionic bond in character, which is stronger? It, it's it's more that the electrons spend a little bit more of their time because they're these actual <laughs> fuzzy quantum clouds, yeah, this right? is physics. Yeah. We don't do physics. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the electrons like to spend a lot more of their time near the carbon than the hydrogens. Mm -hmm. So there's a polarity where the hydrogens are a little bit more positively charged than the carbon, which takes a little bit of that negative. negative charge. So there's a little bit more of an attraction between them. Right. A little bit more of an attraction for the electrons to be a little bit closer to the carbon. Mm -hmm. But... Silicon's the other way around. It's less electronegative than hydrogen, which mm. means the hydrogens end up stealing those electrons off, of off the silicon, which makes SiH4 extremely reactive mm -hmm. because reactions are electrons creating places. And if those electrons are spending a lot of their time near the edge of this SiH4, remember, so the, the silicon or the carbon is in the center, surrounded mm -hmm. by four hydrogens. And these hydrogens are more electron greedy than silicon. So all of your electrons are around the outside, the outside of the outside. compound. Exactly. So an oxygen comes by and it's yeah. like, hey, it's let like, me just take all of those. Yeah. <laughs> and it takes them and that's a combustion reaction. <laughs> yeah. Right? <laughs> so, yeah. What about somewhere like Venus? where I mean, or somewhere hotter than Venus even, like a hot Jupiter. Could you have like gaseous quartz? Yeah, so there are ideas that you could have rock clouds on very hot worlds. So um, in, in very hot gas giant planets, you would get clouds that are essentially made up of what we think of as rocks. So only under those really wildly different geochemical and thermodynamic regimes mm -hmm. can you even possibly think of how you would mobilize silicon in a way that would allow for maybe life to form. But again, I don't really know. So maybe Star Trek's hedging its bets a little bit by, you know, making the Horda look all lava-y. Are they kind of implying that it's hot? I think so. But then but Kirk and Bones just <laughs> pick, pick it, it up. up. <laughs> well, granted, they, they shot that part off of it. But the lava bits didn't cool and get black or anything. Right, yeah. <laughs> they just pick it up. So uh, I don't know what's going on there. And and Spock mind melts with the live one, and mm -hmm. he doesn't, like, burn himself. He doesn't to touch the crisp. lava parts, though. Yeah, yeah. He touches, like, the asbestos parts. <laughs> <laughs> Which is 
just a little bit less Don't, bad. if you find some asbestos out in the world, please do not inhale it. This is your friendly geology reminder to not inhale asbestos. Yeah, in conclusion, I, I think that silicon-based life, if it actually worked, it would exist under wildly different yeah, conditions. Yeah, we can't even imagine anything about the origin of life on an, any world like that. Right, and it, it definitely wouldn't be water-based. Be, yeah. Water-based. Because at the temperatures and pressures where water is stable, silicon makes rocks, mm -hmm. and rocks are pretty inert. And mm -hmm. as much as we love the Horda, rock monsters Hey, that's what my mom thinks I do at school. I'm like, study hey, I'm studying geobiology. I'm like, mom, I'm doing geobiology. And she's like, rock monsters! <laughs> <laughs> well, so there is a glimmer of hope in this Caltech professor's work. Her name is Frances Arnold, and she is a professor of chemical engineering at Caltech. And just last year, her lab produced results that showed that bacteria can actually produce silicon carbon bonds. So what they did is they artificially, they played God, basically. They did some artificial selection where they had a bunch of bacteria, a bunch of microbes, and they randomly altered their DNA. Did they just induce mutations? They, yeah, they induced mutations, just randomly altered their DNA, and then selected for the ones that performed the task that they wanted it to do, which was to bond silicon into carbon and make an organosilicon bond. So they ended up using this microbe called Rhodothermus marinus, which is found in hot springs in Iceland. And they isolated an enzyme called cytochrome C that generates low levels of organosilicon compounds. And by artificially selecting for this kind of enzyme, they were able to actually produce a lot of carbon-silicon bonds. What are these carbon-silicon bonds in, though? Right, so it's not like they're creating silicon-based life or even glimmers of silicon-based life. these things aren't incorporating silicon into their DNA. No, the, like the, they're not incorporating sil silicon into DNA. They're basically just making compounds that have a carbon bonded to a silicon. Like uh, the first step, I suppose, to your imaginative idea where you would pluck out all the carbons from some kind of life form and replace them with silicon. But it's not actually an astrobiological experiment. What they're actually trying to do is make these compounds that contain carbon-silicon bonds that are used in agricultural chemicals and paints and semiconductors and computers ah, and TV screens. Money, is, money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The main upshot for this is to make these organosilicon bonds more efficiently and using less toxic methods because the synthetic methods that we've been doing to make our technologies aren't all that great. But if you can use microbes to do the work for you naturally, quote unquote naturally, then it's a lot better for the environment. Interesting. Well, life does interact with silicon sometimes. In the ocean, there are some small organisms, a lot like plankton, that instead of precipitating a skeleton made out of carbonate minerals, like your corals that you see us, we have carbonate minerals in our bones. Most biomineralization or minerals that are made by biology for some purpose is carbonate, but there are some small organisms that make silicon-based skeletons. But again, they're not incorporating this into their biochemistry, they're just forcing it to mineralize as a rock around themselves so they can have a protective shell, basically. Mm -hmm. So life can interact with silicon, but it, it doesn't, as we know it, incorporate it into its biochemistry is basically what you're talking about with this experiment that they were doing. Right. Um, we don't use silicon where we would use carbon. Carbon, yeah. yeah. So bad news for the Horda. 
Yeah, it was a really cool idea, though, and it, it gets you thinking. It really does get you thinking. It, it makes you ask the question, are there different biochemistries besides our own available for the universe to use? Are we going to talk about this? Do you, do you want to talk about uh, this? I think this is a Titan episode. This is a... <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, we, I, I know exactly what scene we need to watch for the Titan episode. Yeah. Yeah. Are we doing an origin of life next? Uh, I don't know what we're going to do next. Actually, well, Peter Gow's visiting, yeah. so we're going to get just together with him. Just talk about Star Trek. We're probably just going to talk about Star Trek. We'll probably slip some science in there mm -hmm. a little bit, but it won't be an astrobiology-focused mm -hmm. episode. We'll return to that in two weeks. Well, whatever we end up deciding to talk about next episode, we'll see you next week when we're talking with Peter Gao. Yes, and James and then, D. Keen. Yeah. And then the week after that, we'll have another astrobiology-themed talk for you guys. So hopefully you're enjoying these. We're really enjoying talking about it because this is actually, actually what Mike and I talk about when we're alone. Like, legit, we go out and eat and we talk about astrobiology we talk about different metabolisms we actually do <laughs> sometimes it's kind of a joke though like we we made up a metabolism where you consume anger, anger and breathe hatred fury fury, fury yeah. Yeah. <laughs> consume anger breathe, breathe fury. fury um and you'll probably learn a little bit more about where that particular joke came from when we do our origin of life episode oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. so i think we'll leave you with that <laughs> That's not actually true. We talk about things other than science also. I mean, there's a whole universe of Star Trek to discuss. And oh, do we have a Star Trek discussion-packed episode coming up for you. This week, I'm planning to bring Drs. Peter Gao and James T. Keen back on the show to talk about all the latest developments in Star Trek Discovery and our hopes for the final episodes of Season 1. For now, though, I hope you learned something new about the diverse and prolific nature of Earth's subsurface biosphere. Even though the microbes that inhabit kilometer-deep depths in Earth's crust are all carbon-based lifeforms with water-based chemistry, these things are teaching us that there are still so many different ways to be alive. So with that thought, I'll leave you until next time. See you out there. So, I promise this is relevant, because it has to do with elements on the periodic table, and planets, which I love. <laughs> and so, planets, which I love. Okay, alright, so you know how, we've, we've talked about this, like, offhandedly many times. Um, we've mentioned Planet Nine. Planet Nine oh was proposed by Pluto Killer himself, Mike Brown. At Pluto Killer. At Pluto Killer, and Constantine Batygin. I don't know his Twitter handle. At K. Batigan. That's so boring. Why does Mike Brown have the cool Twitter handle? Because he killed the planet. Constantine ain't killed the planet yet. Constantine has a band. <laughs> Constantine's a cool guy. He has bright red dyed hair and a mohawk right now. Like, he's a cool dude. Mike Brown is just Mike Brown. Anyhow, so this group, this pair, this wild pair. <laughs> <laughs> we should just do an episode talking about them. The, the wild pair of Caltech professors proposed this new object called Planet Nine. They call it Planet Nine because if it 
were to be found, it would be the ninth planet in the solar system because Mike killed Pluto. And so now there are only eight, but planet nine would be the ninth. So if planet nine were to be found, what would you name it? It used to be that elements on the periodic table were named after the planets that were discovered. Mm -hmm. So we have uranium. The reason why it's called uranium is because there's Uranus. And then we have Neptunium, named after the planet Neptune. And then we have plutonium, which is named after the former planet Pluto. Mm -hmm. So if we wanted to follow that trend and name planet nine after the next element on the periodic Mm. table, do you know what the next element Mm. is? I do. It's... Americium. Which is named after? America. So we would have to name Planet Nine? America. America. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Can we please not do that?